This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Democrats are trying to close a rift in their party. After a deeply divisive presidential primary, they created a unity reform commission. It has held some of its first meetings. Party chairman Tom Perez described the goal. What we do on this commission together uh, will make our party more inclusive and more competitive, not simply at the presidential level, but up and down the ballot, because the mission of the Democratic National Committee is to elect Democrats uh, from the school board to the Senate, from the water commission to the White House. A Coloradan sits on this Unity Reform Commission. He is former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb. He was a Clinton supporter, and he is just back from the most recent meeting earlier this month in San Antonio. And Mayor Webb, welcome back to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. I imagine that as part of this unity work, the party is taking stock of what happened uh, during the primary and last November. Are there specific things party leadership at the DNC got wrong? Well, we're Democrats, and as Democrats, we always have strong, different personal points of view. Um, I've been active in the party since my late 20s, and uh, the first time I got involved with the uh, Democratic Party was as a uh, grassroots volunteer for George McGovern because we were trying to change the uh, delegate system. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And the uh, because we were, we were all anti, uh, anti-Vietnam anti War folks. They were trying to change the system to elect more liberal candidates uh, for the party to run. And we did. And we got slaughtered. Um, for those that remember the McGovern campaign, old enough to do that. So uh, if you fast forward, the party's had several uh, charter commission uh, reviews, which I was also on in the 70s. When you talk about issues like superdelegates, as an example, you have to also talk about who you're talking about. So basically, the elimination of superdelegates would be the elimination of Michael Bennett. It would be the elimination of uh, John Hickenlooper. It's the elimination of Diana DeGette. It's elimination of people that we vote for. Now, if you want those individuals running for delegate slots, running for individuals who are new and active in the party— uh, I think they then run at a disadvantage. I think we need to probably lessen the number of delegates, superdelegates we have, but we also have to look at how we also maintain the expertise of our elected officials like John Hickenlooper and like Michael Bennett and like Diana DeGette and uh, Ed Permitter and Jared Polis. These superdelegates have uh, more extraordinary powers than than typical delegates. You're saying not eliminating superdelegates altogether, but perhaps reducing the number of Correct. them. Okay. I, I want to go back to that, that question that I began with. Do you think leadership at the DNC got something wrong? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. What? And I, I think I think that uh, uh, the former chairperson, I think uh, Debbie should have stepped down. This is uh, Debbie Wasserman yeah, Schultz. And I think that uh, some of the, I think that that some of the actions she took place, uh, she should not have been aligned. The chair is supposed to not be aligned with any candidate. And I think that's I, I think that's a that's a grievance that was raised by some of the Sanders people that I think is is correct. Leaked emails indicated that there were those within the DNC high up in the party that uh, favored Clinton. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And you think that's not correct? Oh, I do think that's correct. 
I mean, I think if you sit here at this radio station and you and I work for 20 years and you run for something and we've been working together, then more than likely I'm going to support you. The reason that many of the people at the DNC supported Hillary is because she had built more than a 20-year relationship with these individuals when they were running for office. I mean, it's not like they just came, jumped off of uh, Blue Sky One aircraft and said, I'm going to support Hillary Clinton just because she's Hillary Clinton. But that the chair of the Democratic Party should not be tipping the scales. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The chair should be non-aligned and should be uh, making sure that the process is fair for all candidates that are running for the nomination. In any of these unity commission meetings, have Sanders supporters asked you to acknowledge what some of them believe, that Sanders would have beat Trump? Oh, I don't believe that. I, I, you know, do the, do I they mean, approach that's, you that's, with that's, that? that's, that's the same as saying that the Cavaliers were going to beat Golden State. I mean, whether the, <laughs> whether the rim is 10 feet high and 9 feet high, you play with the rules that are there. You can't come in after the game is over and then say, well, what would have happened, what could have happened, what should have happened in the black community. We have a saying called, that's after whist. The game is over. You know, you play by the rules that are there. Right after the election, one of the biggest critics from inside the Democratic Party was State Representative Joe Salazar, who said your dismissal of frustrated Sanders supporters was part of the party's problems. Here's what he said in November. The thing of it is, is that here in the state of Colorado, what we need to do is we need to start forming better coalitions. And and uh, uh, Mayor Webb's uh, comments and his statements uh, is not conducive for, for forming coalitions amongst the Democratic uh, Party. Now, I want to note that when we invited you on the show, Mayor Webb, you asked that Representative Salazar, who's now running for state attorney general, be included because of a campaign event. He couldn't make it live here today, but we did reach him earlier this week. You know, out of that whole entire crew that people consider to be establishment, it's Mayor Webb who's actually doing the outreach to uh, the, the progressives, the left wing of the party, saying, hey, how can we do this? It's, I don't see any other of Democratic Party leadership of of that caliber doing what he's doing. Joe Salazar, who had been your critic, now says you are instrumental in forging the conversations between the Clinton and the Sanders camps in this unity effort. What is it? How are you building that bridge? What are the conversations? First of all, let me let me let me help with some clarification, because I think sometimes in the heat of battle, things get said that uh, you say it before you can pull it back as uh, Representative Salazar knows, uh, at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, I asked him, who should I reach out to? Give me the names of some of those individuals I should reach out to. And he gave me the names of some of those individuals, three or four young ladies that I did meet with. And when Joe left the convention, he called me back and said, I'm glad to see that you're talking to these folks. They wanted to uh, have a protest during the convention. I supported them having a protest. Matter of fact, I even gave them the money to buy the materials for them to to make their protest banners and make their protest masks so they were looking like the Lone Ranger when they were sitting up in the Colorado delegation, which many of you may have seen. Uh, so I think that uh, I probably went overboard because many of the Clinton delegates were upset that I was supporting um, some of the Sanders folks. But to me, it's not about Clinton Sanders. And I think what is it about? It's about winning election for Democrats. It's about what do we need to go forward? What do we need to do to win the governor's office, maintain the governor's office? What do we need to do to win the attorney general's office? What do we need to do to win the next Senate race? What do we need to do 
uh, to win the next presidential race? What do we need to do to w- uh, win the midterms? It's about winning. It's about winning elections. And we also have to be smart enough to understand that we can come up with a 50-state plan, but we also have to understand the states are different. These states are not all alike. We saw that last uh, last week in Virginia, uh, that the Sanders candidate did well in the northern part of Virginia but lost the rest of the state. We have to have candidates that can win statewide. I like part of the Sanders message. We're probably not one ounce away from each other in terms of message about uh, single payer. I, yeah, I'm for single payer. Single payer. Close, closing system. private prisons. Yeah, I want to close private prisons. Uh, so many of the issues that he talks about, I'm for. But I also believe that we have to have the technical ability to win elections statewide. Well, and Salazar was saying this week that you are one of the few members of the Unity Commission that he feels is really reaching across the divide, uh, that he has concerns others are not. What do you say to that? Well, it's it's my hope, and I appreciate uh, Representative Salazar's comments. It's my hope that the commission, I think our purpose, again, I'm going to restate this for you again. Our purpose is the last election's over, you know. Uh, Golden State won this session. <laughs> We're talking about who's going to win next year. I'm talking about who's going to win in 2018. That's where we need to focus. We need to focus on how Sanders folks and supporters and Clinton supporters, Jill Stein supporters, uh, what's the marijuana governor guy, uh, Gary Johnson, mm. Um, can band together to support candidates, Democratic candidates that can win elections and stop this this uh, this tragedy that we have with President Donald Trump. But what do you say, Mayor Webb, to those who believe the Democratic Party is not grassroots enough, is too corporate, and and who see what what you perceive as an inch of difference, as a mile? As a what? As a mile difference between the, say, Bernie Sanders wing of the party and the traditional wing of the party. I don't think they've, I don't think those individuals have engaged enough to understand that because I believe that everyone has a right to belong to whatever party they want. So so if they don't like our part of the party, what do they like? The Republicans? I mean, you know, if you look at what Trump's doing, he's the corporate guy. Uh, everything he said he was against, he's already done in terms of rolling back the issues with Dodd-Frank, protecting consumers, uh, eviscerating Obamacare, all these things. Now, um, as Democrats, our tent has always been open and we've always been open into uh, accepting grassroots folks. I want to wrap up with a question about Colorado politics sure. and the very busy field for the Democratic primary for governor. And it strikes me that, in a way, it's a test of the balance between um, a party that can have, you know, a very uh, spirited primary and a primary that just becomes overly divisive and might lead to uh, a loss in an election. What are your thoughts on the crowded and, and, you know, potentially... um, toxic campaign that could arise? I don't think it's toxic at all. I think it makes us stronger. 
I think we have great candidates, and I think the electorate gets to choose one. And whether you consider yourself grassroots or whether you consider yourself establishment or whether you consider yourself traditional, to me, anyone that's elected to office is is, is establishment. Uh, they can't call themselves grassroots. Anybody that's elected is establishment because uh, they're part of the process. They're part of the establishment when, once they once they took the oath. Are you you excited so, then about the field? Oh, absolutely. We've got great candidates to choose from. And I think any of our five are better than any one of those running as Republicans because I know they're going to do more for the people of Colorado than what those Republican candidates are going to do. We will obviously hear from those Republican voices as well. Mayor Webb, thank you for being with us. Okay. Well, that was fast. That was quick. (laughs) Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb is a member of the Democratic Party's Unity Reform Commission, and it's scheduled to meet again in Chicago in August, then finally in Las Vegas in October, and the commission must issue a report and recommendations by the end of the year. Let's say you're in a band and you want to book a show at Red Rocks. Well, get in line, writes Steve Knopper. In Variety magazine, he reports that some dates at the amphitheater, especially on weekends, are booked up to five years in advance. Knopper is here to explain what's going on. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Appreciate I've no, it. I have no idea what I'd be doing five years from now. The notion <laughs> of booking a venue for them uh, seems uh, ludicrous in a way. Yeah, I mean, well, they've changed the policy. You know, it's Red Rocks, as hard as it is to believe, because I feel like Red Rocks has been in demand for many, many years, Mm. you know, but just over the last few years, concerts in general have been more in demand as the record business, the music business has shifted from selling albums to sort of selling concert tickets. That's how people, everybody's making their money that way. So and this, every, is, this is especially true at Red Rocks. Everyone wants to play Red Rocks. Yeah. And so now you have, you know, tons of bands that can sell out multi-dates. And every year you see some of the same acts, Widespread Panic and Umphreys McGee and Ryan Adams now. And they're all selling out and it becomes, there's only a few dates. So it's all about supply and demand. So why does Red Rocks, which is owned by the city and county of Denver... Uh, allow bands to book dates up to five years. In well, they, they, I mean, they can basically do their policy any way they want. Um, but just recently, actually, and my article talks about this, it's changed. So it has been in the past that five years has been the amount of time. As of October 1st this year, they're phasing in a new policy where it will only be two years. So the, uh, starting this fall, bands will only be able to book two years in advance as opposed to five and years. What explains that change? I think the same thing that just the common sense thing that you were just talking about, like, that's crazy. I don't know what I'm going to be doing in five years. Oh. You know, two years is a little bit more manageable, a little bit more reasonable. But isn't that going to make the two-year time frame just even more competitive? Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. But there, as I say in the story, there's this whole kind of thing with Red Rocks where you have these challenges and you can put up $15,000 to challenge uh, we can get to that, but you yeah. can, you can no, put... no. Let's talk about this system. Yeah. It's fascinating. So, if you've got a booking at Red Rocks, it might still be yours by the time the concert date comes right. around. But there are ways to uh, kind of navigate that, right? You can reserve a date at Red Rocks pretty much without paying, or or just by paying the the very minimum. Okay, um, but if if you do it that way, and then some act comes in and challenges your date 
that act can pay $15,000. Then Red Rocks will come to you, the original person, and say, if you put up $15,000, you can keep the date since you came first. It's a bit of a bidding war. Not quite. Not but... quite. I mean, it, the, the the person who, it's more first come, first serve. But, uh-huh. And the, the person who comes first has the ability to put down the $15,000 and keep the date. Have some artists then been just shut out of performing at Red Rocks? I don't think so. I, I, th- I mean... Red Rocks is sort of a, a, a giant venue that gets the best of the best. So, you know, me and my and my local band down the street are probably, <laughs> you know, going to be okay with being shut out of Red Rocks. So, so the acts that you see on the bill there are pretty much the acts that you want to be playing Red Rocks, you know. But back to that, that uh, idea of challenging a date. Right. Um, you have to be flush enough to, to come up with the cash to keep your date. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. so that, that's got to favor some acts over others. Yeah, right? of course. And, and there is, I mean, it's, again, it's not like the, the band on the street can come in and play Red Rocks any old time. I mean, there are two major concert promoters here in Denver, as you know, Live Nation and AEG, and they have ins and connections and connections with the biggest acts that, you know, my band down the street doesn't have. Mm-hmm. So, so it's definitely, I wouldn't say it's, it's a purely, democratic procedure you know it's it's not open to everybody necessarily and i don't know if you would want it to be um but you know it it is it is i think it's a fair system i think if you have five or six acts that that want the same date um you have this system of challenging which works seems to work for them pretty well um and you know the it's once if if more than one act pays the fifteen thousand dollars then it becomes kind of first come first served Hmm. And that way, the date reflects the demand for it, essentially right. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you in a bit if that's proper for a publicly owned venue, but I, I would like you to tell us the story of the rock duo Ween, yeah. which reunited in 2015 and wanted to book some dates, I think this summer at Red yeah. Rocks. What, what happened? I mean, Ween is an example that I use in my story. I, I talked to their manager or one of their managers, and um, he was just saying that, uh, you know, they, they were planning to do this reunion tour. You know, they'd been apart for a while and, and they weren't quite sure. I think the way he put it was they were still kind of kicking the tires on this reunion. They weren't sure what they wanted to do. So they said, let's book Red Rocks for next summer, you know, and then someone challenged them or and and they or, or I figured they may have challenged and then they lost the challenge. So they weren't able to get the date that they originally wanted to get. And then they went through the process a second time and then they were able to actually get the date and they're playing Red Rocks, uh, I believe, this summer. Hmm. What does that tell us, that story? Uh, which the, the story. of Ween? Oh well, they they just it was it was basically as I said um, the second time they went through the process. They said, yeah. you know, we will we'll challenge this date and we'll pay the fifteen thousand dollars. And they were successful that time, and they they got the date that they wanted. So it was it was a, a little bit early. It wound up being you know a year or two early before they actually got the date that they had to book, and they were not quite ready for it. So that yeah. that happens with with bands sometimes. It's complicated, so if I yeah to right say. exactly yeah. And, and to that question of whether this is right for a publicly owned venue, I mean, I think you've made the point that it doesn't make sense that everyone should have access, no matter what, yeah. to Red Rocks, so that your garage band is playing. Yeah. Uh, but is is have they struck the right balance? Do you think? I think they have. I mean, it, it's not free to play Red Rocks. Like Red Rocks is a city-owned venue, and and it is to an extent open to everybody. But you have to pay. I mean, even beyond this challenge process, if there was no challenge process involved, you have to pay seventy five hundred dollars just to hold the date in the first place, and then that amount of money gets applied to your rent for the venue once you do the date. So I think that that even though Red Rocks is city-owned and you expect a certain level of sort of it's a public venue, 
just like the airwaves, you know, and it's public for everybody. You also don't really want, you know, some people just walking into Red Rocks and setting up their banjos and amps on stage. But it is big business. Does this mean more revenue for the city? I mean, I imagine it does when there are very competitive days. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that in general, the the revenue for the city has from Red Rocks has been going up and up. I mean, if you look at the numbers, um, the number of events at Red Rocks every summer has been just growing. I think it's I don't remember the exact numbers in my article, but it, it, it's more than doubled over the last four or five years. I mean, what's interesting about Red Rocks is that it is a sought-after venue, but it is not comparatively a very large venue. Right, that's right. The The capacity for Red Rocks is only 9,500, which surprises some people because people think of it as being this epic place to go see a show and think it's much bigger. But, you know, if you're if you're an act and you want to play 20,000 seats at a time, you can get that many people, you're probably going to go to Fiddler's instead. Mm. Or you might do two nights at Red Rocks or certainly something like the Pepsi Center. But Red Rocks is, is definitely sort of, it, it's really, it, it's kind of for smaller acts, really, that's the size of it. But people love to play there so much that they kind of jam themselves into a smaller space. And that's what creates the higher demand. Right. Many shows sell out quickly. Right. That forces people to buy tickets from companies like StubHub. Right. Um, what does this mean for, for fans, for concert goers? I mean, the the challenge policy and the, the amount of time that shows are held um, in advance is is more of a business to business thing. It, it doesn't really, that part of it doesn't, which is what my story is about, doesn't really affect the fans too much. Yeah. But but what you're talking about is something else, which is the high demand for a smaller venue like Red Rocks and the high demand in general in the concert business, which leads to more reselling, scalping activity. Um, and that is a big problem in the concert business in general. And it affects Red Rocks because it's one of the biggest and most important venues. Right. And that's a function then of higher Ticket prices, which is connected to the supply and demand and the size of the venue. Any advice for people who want tickets to a show at Red Rocks? I mean, I, the the main advice is sort of don't get your hopes up. You know, oh, I'm sorry to say that. Terrible but advice. I know. I'm really sorry. But the, the, the way that the concert business has been going for most concerts, not all of them, um, is that because of a, of, of a series of factors um, – you know, acts that play Red Rocks and other venues hold tickets for themselves, for radio stations, for pre-sales that are sponsored by credit card companies or just their own fan clubs. And so by the time uh, for really big acts, you, you get to buying the tickets for your your on sale from Ticketmaster Saturday at 10 a.m. or whatever it is. It's like the 10 seats left. There's only yeah. a certain percentage of seats that are left. I, I've read, it depends on the show, but some people estimate, you know, 50%. Some people estimate 20%. It, it, it depends. Uh -huh. So not as many tickets available for you, the fan, and then that kicks you over to StubHub or Ticketmaster has its own reselling site. It's part, it's part of the business. Everyone's supporting the resale market right now. Because they're not buying CDs. Well, way. that's <laughs> that you could argue that fans have more income to spend on concerts, you know, which tickets have become more expensive. Thanks for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Steve Knopper is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine. He actually wrote about Red Rocks for Variety, and you can read that story at cprnews.org. We've been asking for your Red Rocks memories, the best concert you've seen there. Kristen Lummis of Grand Junction remembers a show in 1985 like it was yesterday. It was an afternoon Grateful Dead show. It was hot and sunny and a gorgeous day, and the first song they played was Cold Rain and Snow. The crowd went wild, and it just turned into an epic afternoon. Kind of set the standard for all other Red Rock shows, and it's never been surpassed.
Mark Cavanaugh tweeted, Don't make me choose between Dire Straits 1985 and Radiohead 2003. And Michelle McGinn told us, Dolly Parton, obviously best show ever. R.B. Faft is grateful to have seen a legend before it was too late. In June 2005, she attended a show with her new husband and some friends. The headliners were the Pixies, opening with the Violent Femmes and Sharon Joan and the Dap Kings. And it was actually the culminating event of our honeymoon. My husband and I went to Jamaica for a week and came home. And the last crowning event of our wedding week was going to Red Rocks to see that show And several of our good friends, including friends from my childhood, came and met us. And it was beautiful music and good fun. And these days, I'm extra grateful I had the chance to see Sharon Jones at Red Rocks, too. So many times there was a man who met a girl and took her hand. He told her, never will I leave you, my love. But just as soon as he's gone again, she's a flapping in the wind. Wondering what she must have been thinking Other favorite Red Rocks shows include The Beatles, their one visit as a band to Colorado in 1964, and you pointed to singer-songwriter Brandy Carlisle there. You can keep sending us your faves at Colorado Matters on Twitter or head to cprnews.org slash connect to reach out. Again, cprnews.org slash connect. Fathers sometimes become coaches. Hal Walter did. His son has autism, and Hal has helped him compete in middle school running. It can be exhausting and painful, but with the support of their small southern Colorado community, there have been victories as well. Hal Walter writes about this in his latest book, and ahead of Father's Day joins me by phone from Westcliff, Colorado. That's about an hour west of Pueblo. Hal, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. Your son, Harrison, is going into eighth grade this fall, I think. And uh, you yourself are an athlete, a distance runner, and a champion Packborough racer. And you've helped coach Harrison and his middle school cross-country and track teams. Uh, tell us what happened at the first South Park track meet in Fair Play. Well, this was a little over a year ago, and it was the first meet ever held on the new track up there at uh, South Park, which is uh, near the little town of Fair Play. And um, ironically, this is where I've also competed in pack barrel racing for so many years. But uh, Harrison runs the 400 meter, and he also runs the 800 meter. And so the 400 meter is one one trip around the track, and the 800, 800 meter is two trips around the track. Yeah. So he'd already run his 400, and uh, it was time for the 800. And uh, he got a great start and uh, was was heading around the second curve, I was down the the field a ways watching, and I suddenly saw his gait just fall apart, and he was approaching the bleachers. He veered over to some spectators. He got himself back on track. He got in front of the bleachers and started running in place. He then uh, started running backwards, and by now the top two guys in the race are coming in for the finish. He almost took them out. And uh, he was just having a real difficult time there. I I uh, walked over to try to get him back on track, and he 
he uh, took a swing at me, and then he continued on. And, and after he finished that first lap, I, I went over and I said, do you want to, to, to finish this or do you want to pack it in? And, and he indicated that he wanted to keep going. And so I jogged along with him around that first curve. And, and as we were coming into that backside straightaway, suddenly here, here comes this uh, uh, group of runners from another school. And they joined him. And they, you know, encouraged him to go all the way down that that straightaway. And when he got to the second curve, they had picked up other kids. And as they rounded the other curve, you know, half of his team was there. And he hit the straightaway at a dead run and right through the finish line. And he didn't stop till he reached the security fence <laughs> where he was mobbed by the... Uh, you know, the other competitors from all these other schools. And the entire scene just really struck me as, as a, a, a phenomenal um, testimony to the the community, not only his own teammates, but, but the other schools which have seen him uh, running for, for, you know, actually two years now. Yeah, there's such kindness, such understanding in that. Would you say that you were surprised by that reaction? I wasn't even surprised, although I was... Um, really taken aback by it. Uh, I, I remember standing there in the field um, almost all alone and watching this and just uh, thinking this is one of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen in sports. Yeah, it's it's rather cinematic, actually. I can see it playing out on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, the support that you witnessed from the community and that your son witnessed is really at the heart of what you call deep sport And I'd like to have you read an excerpt from this new collection of essays uh, that explores what what that means, deep sport. Sure, this is this is a a passage from from the book, and and it's my attempt to explain what deep sport is. The notion of deep sport stems from deep ecology, which speaks to the worth and value of all living beings and their rights to live and flourish. It's not about following the crowd or the latest gear, flashy clothes, or having a perfect body. Deep sport is rarely televised and is not often a medium for selling material goods. Deep sport is certainly about triumph, but not necessarily winning in the traditional sense. Nobody loses. Even when you don't win, you learn. It is arising within and understanding that true competition means building up your rivals rather than tearing them down. It's being aware of your habitat. Deep sport values richness and diversity. It's the interconnectedness we all share, community building, and standing with your tribe. It's feeling right at home when you are totally lost. It's feeling right at home when you are totally lost. And I like that line, deep sport is rarely televised. Is deep sport just any sport that isn't professional? What what, what is it? I think deep sport is, is a is a sense of um community and and a sense of of uh finding something else besides winning in 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 competition and and also in really any outdoor outdoor activity. Hmm. And and so what does winning mean for Harrison? Again, your son who has autism. Well, for me, you know, 37 years of of uh competition, I always viewed winning as first place. That was winning. And I think what I've learned from Harrison and, and, and even moreover from, from his teammates and, and from the other kids that he competes with is that, that winning is really overcoming challenges. 
What has that meant for Harrison? And what has it meant for you as a father? What have the two of you overcome together? I think we've overcome adversity, uh, really. And, uh, you know, when you really think about it, most, most children with autism don't get an opportunity like, like Harrison's had to, to, um, run on a, on a school team. And in fact, when, when the cross country coach first suggested it, I was stunned because I I didn't even ever consider that Harrison would be on a team. And, and yet here he is, uh, you know, overcoming his, his, uh, challenges and, uh, and sometimes doing quite well. Has, has running overall, do you think been good for him? I think running's good for anybody. And, and particularly in this day and age, we, we see, uh, you know, two syndromes, uh, exercise deficiency syndrome and, and nature deficiency syndrome. And, and the idea of getting out in the outdoors and in nature and running, uh, natural movement, uh, it can't be, can't be bad for anybody, but I think it's especially helpful for, for anybody with, uh, neurodiversity issues. Neurodiversity. I like that term, and it's one that you use. Will you explain what it means? You know, when, when Harrison was first uh, diagnosed with autism, I had a real, a real problem with it. I didn't like labeling my child. Uh, but I did find some comfort in, in this, this label because it, explained, it helped me explain some things to people when I was having a problem or he was having issues. You know, you could just say, well, I'm sorry, my son has autism. But as time went on, I, I came back to, the, to that label, and, and, uh, and I've done a fair amount of research into how, how that label came about. And, and then this term neurodiversity uh, showed up. In fact, there's a, there's a book out about that, that uses that term, and I started adopting it. And what I like about it is it's, it's more inclusive. And when you think about it, probably all of us have some form of neurodiversity. I know I've, I've battled with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, most of my life. And a lot of people have ADHD issues and, and, um, and then some people have autism and, and in my son's case, he has both autism and he's also diagnosed with ADHD. And what I like about neurodiversity is that it includes everybody who has some sort of a a neurological issue going on. Right. It's, it's less binary. It's more something's right and something's wrong, something's normal, something's abnormal. And it's a recognition that we all, in, in a way, are on, to use also a loaded term, a spectrum. Uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with writer Hal Walter about what he's learned from coaching his son, who has autism, as a runner. Uh, he's written uh, a new collection of essays about this. And um, you've noticed that your son's running gait is connected often to what's going on inside his head. How so? Exactly. And, and as I mentioned, when describing that scene at South Park, I couldn't hear what was going on, but I could see from a hundred yards away, his, his gait just crumple. And I knew something was going on upstairs. And, and I've, I've been, observing his gate and my gate and the gate of other kids on the team. And it is interesting when things are, 
are firing right upstairs, the gate with Harrison can be amazing, you know, perfect form, foot landing, you know, right where it should be. And, and then as soon as something's not, something's disconnected up, up in his brain, there's a, there's a falling apart of the form and, and it goes quickly and you can see it in his stride. You can see it in his foot plant. You can see it in his arm swing very quickly. Have you been and able to figure out what triggers it? Many things can trigger it. And in the case at, at the South Park meet, it ended up being a little bit of a complicated scenario, but it, it seemed simple at first. He, he was having problems with the crowd cheering. And everybody has these stereotypes about autistic kids, and the first thing everybody said was get earplugs. And I even bought into it. I went out and bought a bunch of earplugs, and, and we tried them out, and they were not the answer. And this this phenomenon of him having trouble with the crowd went on into the cross-country season the next year, and and it took a great deal of effort for me to finally understand what was going on there. It wasn't the the sound per se it wasn't a uh, sensory issue going okay. on with them it was an identity issue the crowd brought into focus that he was different and ma- made him feel like he was standing out hmm. and so the cheering was setting things off with him in his brain so it, it it's a misinterpretation perhaps of the intention of the crowd um, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, a feeling that that he's being judged as opposed to actually celebrated or or rooted on, or not not so much judged, but but the crowd tends to cheer even louder for him than they do for for other kids. Oh. I think they recognize that he that his finishing or his even if he does well or if he finishes ahead of another kid is 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 a is a a bigger deal than than probably the guy who won uh, in his heat. So it. It uh, he gets a lot of attention from from the crowd, and I think he had interpreted it as being singled out in a way. And I suppose this goes back to what the definition of winning is. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being with us, and uh, in advance, I wish you a happy Father's Day. Thank you for having me on your show, Ryan. Hal Walter's latest book is Endurance and selected essays on neurodiversity and deep sport. He lives in West Cliff, Colorado, west of Pueblo. We've posted an excerpt and photos. There's more, too, at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Juneteenth celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. A Denver rapper and activist also wants it to be about food and health, key issues he believed in the African-American community especially. This weekend, Denver's historically black Five Points neighborhood hosts the annual Juneteenth Music Festival. And Itef Vida will rhyme about veggies and veganism under his stage name, DJ Kavum. And uh, welcome to the program, Itef. Thank you for having me so much. Bef- one love. Uh, one love. I, I, it's a lovely thing to hear. Thank you. Uh, before we get to these newer dimensions, uh, Juneteenth isn't actually a commemoration of Lincoln's 
Emancipation Proclamation. It focuses on another less well-known historical event. Just tell us about that. You know, I was told, you know, that Juneteenth, of course, around June 19th, 1865, was that announcement that they wanted to abolish slavery. And I really thought that as a young person that there should be more about how we can enter, you know, integrate this idea of sustainability and health and wellness. And so when I was, you know, growing up, I always went to the celebrations and I thought it was just a big party, but it was really about how people just found out late that they were technically free. Right. It, it took a while for word to reach certain parts of the country that slavery had been abolished. And this was the recognition of a late announcement of the news in yeah. June. It's pretty, it's really uh, off the chain when you think about it. Like, how is that possible? You know, I think that people should have had some, some news out there, but you know, they didn't have text messaging like we have <laughs> nowadays, right. you know? The official holiday is Monday, but you are celebrating uh, largely this Saturday. That's and right. As you said, you want healthy eating, sustainability to be a part of this celebration, and particularly the idea of food justice. What does food justice mean to you? Food justice is literally around how we can transform the health impacts that is happening in communities predominantly communities in urban cities where they don't have access to healthy food. It's more like living in a food swamp. There might be, you know, chips or, you know, a lemon in a liquor store, but not so much access. So it's about the justice looks like urban farming. It looks like permaculture. It looks like, you know, real influx of sustainability and holistic health practicing in urban communities. That's what food justice looks like. I gather that you have in mind the rate of diabetes and obesity. Oh, man. In the you, community. Yeah, it's so rampant everywhere in urban cities, especially on reservations where Native indigenous live. You can see that, you know, of course, the hypertension, the high blood pressure, like all of these things are really transforming the rate of our community. And we want to see, you know, a positive solution to the food ailments that are happening right now. But some of the efforts that you've talked about, I think a lot of people might associate with gentrification as well. How do, how do you integrate those values in neighborhoods like Five Points that are changing very quickly in terms of their demographics mm -hmm. and like still honoring the original residents of that community. Does that, does that make sense? It is true. I'm, I'm from Five Points and I see a lot of things happening and changing and gentrification is a part of the urban renewal. But at the same time, a lot of communities are displaced. I see a lot of community gardens are popping up and shutting down and land is being flipped. But really what the focus is, is how children can still have access to the community and the intergenerational dialogue to learn more about where they come from. The Five Points has a beautiful history in jazz culture. I mean, more than just we know and what happened in the the Garveyite era and the whole you know the influx of what you see with the Black Panther Party back in the 60s it's more about how we can encourage young people on sustainability now of course so how do you how do you do that in, well, especially in changing neighborhoods this is exactly what we're doing so now environmental hip hop is more the core of what is coming out of the five points so you know I'm from the five the five points and you can actually see that not only did we receive Keep It Fresh Day on June 14th at the Juneteenth Festival, it actually helped see, 
you know, as a different perspective of how the whole country is looking at us. They're looking at, oh, this is where these cats are talking about sustainability. This is where the the OGs, the organic gardeners, is. it's a really big impact of how we're transforming the gang intervention, you know, and also doing the work in the community to encourage the young people. So these are things that we are actually doing as of right now. It's, it's really powerful and really beautiful. Okay, so you think music can be a message, Music is the message. Music is uh-huh. the medium to actually transform and talk about permaculture, regenerative agriculture, and all these things are really helpful right now. And so you can actually see this when these young people are coming into the classrooms, they're drinking fresh juices, they're going into schools. You can see these happening everywhere. I would love to play some of your music, a, a tune called Cool to Live, which explores themes like fracking and veganism. That's right. Maybe you can help me find direction. I'm a DJ in your cell. Looking for direction. Matter of fact, the produce section. Can I get more? On the way to school, walking by the prison door. Plus two liquor stores and a dog park. Talk about an eyesore when the post park. Have you ever seen a collard green when they grow up? No, show up. But why they murder kings though? Because they scared of a brother who knows how to grow. Plus you got the hip hop dress. No process. Only eat that vegan food. I digest. Deeper than a subway, see me in the underground, living in the earth ship, living off my urban sound. Gotta keep it fresh and get some land and maintain. Cause everywhere I go, see things ain't the same. Everywhere I go, son, things ain't the same. That is Denver rapper DJ Kavim. He's my guest. We're talking about the Juneteenth Festival that takes place this weekend in Denver. And I suppose that that part of the education here is that good food doesn't necessarily have to be more expensive. I mean, I think that's been an assumption for a long time, Mm -hmm. Itaf. It is. You know, a lot of people don't know that you can grow food. You can grow it in your windowsill. I'm actually always encouraging the sprout that life concept. You know, the work that we're doing, like from gangs to gardens, you can see that not only are people really taking this like, you know, as a cool vibe, like natural grocers got down with us and we actually started to do these culinary concerts in the stores because I wanted people to eat fresh produce. I was like, okay, come and just rock. I'm going to rock a produce section and we're going to do a concert right here in front of the ve- in front of the veggies. You've been like and, DJing next to rhubarb. Is that yeah, what yeah. Okay. I mean, literally, which is why we even started this next concept called plant-based records. I'm literally producing music with vegetables. So I touch the veggies. We have a homemade, you know, beat machine, MIDI device. Shout out to my man Detour Thomas Evans for creating that with us. And Wait, what is it? It's literally a beat machine with veggies. You touch the beats to make beats, right? Oh, you you're t- touching. <laughs> you touch the cabbages, you connect it to, you know, to a to a program and you're able to use vegetables as a as a mini device. We're going in and having kids play with their food and then we're cooking it and then we're making raw food and then we're like making cooking videos. This is our concepts of a curriculum that we're in the schools. We're going into schools and doing other things, man. It's so beautiful. It's the evolution to you of the Juneteenth message. Thanks so much for being with us. Environmental hip-hop is on the rise. One love. Itef Vida raps under the name DJ Kavim. You can see him Saturday at the Juneteenth Music Festival in Denver's Five Points neighborhood. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.